we have first compliment, uh, first contribution here. It's just a couple of points that are based on things that Fergal Keane said. One is uh, qualified amnesia, yeah. and the other is generosity. Uh, and his comment about the danger of renewed conflict on this island. Mm -hmm. uh, if we go back to 1922, the British government issued a general amnesty for the War of Independence. If we go back to 1924, the free state government gave a general amnesty for the Civil War. That framed the context in which any further debate could take place. We come forward to 1998, um, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement did not include an amnesty. And what we've seen in recent years, not immediately, but very soon afterwards, was the war being fought out again in the courts. Now, I'm old enough, as many people here are, to remember those days. And I can tell you that some of the court reports I've heard and some of the inquests I've heard bear no resemblance to what I can remember of those events I was, which I witnessed. Uh, and we need to find a new way of doing it. And a few of us uh, from various backgrounds are trying to do that. And Patrick Gates, ways. you're involved in this yourself. So what's, what's your initiative and what's, what do you propose? It, it's a true recovery process. What we're saying is conditional amnesties, not as the British are proposing, but conditional amnesties under judicial oversight by both governments in, 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 in the terms of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, where people can give information in return for immunity, provided it's done in good faith and accurately, and it's based on mediation, not on courtrooms. Um, I, I just finish very quickly with this. In the Bally Murphy inquest, I gave evidence. And I, I'm not going to talk about my evidence, uh, but it was highly contested, both by a barrister for the relatives and a barrister for the British government. Um, and that didn't bother me. What bothered me was that other people who said they would give evidence changed their minds when they saw what happened with me in the court. Because a court is a battleground. They, they're not using battle axes or swords, but it's still trial by combat. And we have to get away from that. And as Fergal Keane has said, and Wilhelm Verbort has said recently as well, we need generosity in having this discussion. We need honesty. And we're not getting either. Thanks. Okay. Yes. Colin Kenny. Thank you very much. We've heard some wonderful contributions, and I just want to comment briefly on two points, one about the use of the word republic and the other about Arthur Griffith and women. In relation to this business about Irish not having the word republic in it, it was Lloyd George who used it with his cabinet secretary when they spoke Welsh together to have a go at De Valera, a little jibe when Jeff went over in July 1921 to arrange his treaty talks. I really think it's a linguistic uh, point rather than a political point. The Irish knew what they wanted and it was a republic. It was something that would belong to the public, to the people of Ireland democratically in a way that Ireland did not belong and that's what really mattered. Yeah. Nobody wanted that more than Arthur Griffith. He established Sinn Féin. He was driven by emigration. He constantly went on about the damage that emigration was doing and he sought economic welfare for his people, and I think that's what most people in Ireland wanted, the independence for economic welfare, and they got that in 1922. A minority didn't like it, and they resisted it. As regards Dr. Doolan's point about, I think it was, she suggested that people like Collins and Griffith, I think were your words, uh, resisted the appointment at least of one woman. 
I'm not sure what the evidence for that is um, myself, because Griffith was quite sympathetic uh, to women. He had, after all, worked hand in glove with Maud Gone for a number of years uh, to establish uh, resistance to the Boer War and other nationalist objectives. He had resisted the exclusion of women from nationalist cultural organizations such as the Celtic Literary Society when others did not. And he had given women like Maureen Killeen a platform in his wonderful paper, The United Irishman, which has not been read enough. It's now digitized. Fortunately, Joyce, James Joyce called it the only paper in Dublin worth reading. And it explains you know, the, the breadth of Griffith's um, vision at that time. Um, he has fallen vic victim to some extent to the myth that was created of the revolution. Um, uh, and I think that myth needs yeah. to be interrogated, and I think some of our speakers here have done that. And I think it's wonderful when the president mentions Tom Johnson and Griffith in the same breath, because the Labour deputy, Cahal O'Shannon, in okay, a letter well, to... Thanks, Scott. I'm going to stop you there, because there are so many people offering, but I take your point, and your own book on Griffith uh, reassures many people on that point of him not being neglected. Yes, gentleman here. Thank you very much, Chair. To say how much we've been deeply moved and touched by the contributions to today. One point I would like to make, though, and it's, it was mentioned by uh, Professor Dr. Kybert about uh, Edward Keegan. My father, Jack Shoulders, and his brother, from about 1916 up to 1921, were, were very well activists. My father, in fact, was sentenced to death in 16. Next out to De Valera, shook hands with Malin as Malin was being brought out to be executed. Heard the shots. So, but when 1921 came, he was a great friend of Harry Boland and he was deeply hurt by what the events of the Civil War took, fortunately took no part in it, but instead was involved in the organizing of a very important uh, event from 1923 to 24, which was the Tajan Games of 1924. And they were equal, they were huge, equal in scope to the Paris Olympics. In fact, they used a lot of the people from the Paris Olympics on their return back to America and other places to take part in the games. And they're not just games like track and prizes, field. Too, didn't they? they had literary prizes as well. But there were also heavily chess, drama, sculpture, plays, they were wonderful. W.B. Yeats was intimately involved. In any event, the, the, uh, Daddy's main point was that it was a wonderful way in which the opponents from both sides were able to pull together, work together, to set up these incredible games. And it's just that I'd like to go on the record as saying that these things should be not forgotten. Yes. Thank you. yes, thank you very much for that. Declan Kybert, you made the point that many of those involved in 1916 did not then mm. stay involved and didn't participate, for instance, in the War of Independence, possibly, and the Civil War. As I said, a lot of them returned precisely to the kind of cultural activities which had brought them into the movement in the first place, pipe bands, the Gaelic League, mm. and the Gaelic Games, and so on. Um, so I, I think that's a very important point, that all that was continuing. Um, just about the word republic, since Dr. Kenny mentioned it, the people on the Blaskets had a king, 
Ari, who was in fact elected. It was a paradoxical thing, an elective monarchy. But this is why O'Crihan was able to say that nobody could obber on focal republic in Wailing. Um, and maybe, maybe the idea of an elective monarchy is not the worst idea that has been come up with in the history of the human race. Lila Julian, on the question of women on the delegation. That, uh, the, the, um, the point was made by uh, Cahill McSweeney Brewer. It was he in a documentary, which I saw a short yeah. time ago, called um, Women, hold on, Extraordinary, no, Ordinary Women in Extraordinary Times. And he simply reported upon what his great aunt, Mary Sweeney, had told him, or had passed down through the generations. And it's actually, I think he made a direct quote, but I decided that might be a bit iffy, so I just said. And it was, in, in fact, people, I think the era was one in which women had a particular place. I mean, if you listen to what they said, excuse me, about Hannah Shee Skeffington and, and uh, Augusta Gregory, I mean, they were regarded as being, you know, a little bit uppity to be contemplating having anything really to do with politics. And that, it seems to me, had more to do with the culture of the time than it had to do with his culture, which might have had. And besides, it was a very important thing, sending plenipotentiaries. My God, who would have a woman? Madness. But among her many attributes, Mary McSweeney, diplomacy or negotiation wouldn't have been her strongest point. <laughs> exactly. It? No, it wasn't her strongest point. She was a good old argumentative creature. Yes. Yeah. And a talker at yeah. great length. Yeah. Angela, you wanted to come in on some of that? No, 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 no not on that, thank okay. you. President. I think there are just two points that struck me about, for example, my own reference to the Fenians. Um, there is in the Fenian tradition in relation to land, and it goes on to the Kettles, for example, and from Fenton Lawler, and in many cases, where there was a, f a far more developed notion about how you would get the usage of the land. And I know that there's a new piece coming out on, in relation to the Kettle family. And uh, they had a, a more advanced view uh, within the debate uh, uh, on landlordism. I do think as well that there's, uh, <coughs> on, on the point that's raised about, about, nine, about 1922, I think there is a bit of myth-building going on there. The suggestion, for example, uh, there's, uh, 1922 is, that is the defining uh, uh, document, the, the passing of the 1922 Constitution. The fact is, is uh, Michael Collins opens the meeting. Uh, Daryl Fidges, as vice chairman, is there for most of the time. And you have four documents. But the fact of the matter is, the document that is transmitted is rejected. And the elements that were included, in fairness to those who put them in uh, from the democratic programme, are rejected by the British. And uh, as well as that, this, uh, as I understand it, the suggestion is that it would endanger land certainty and yeah. the treaty. And uh, the other point, I think, which I think, which I was very grateful to the, the publication by Force was, was in relation to the, to the oath of loyalty to the king. Uh, which isn't there until the passing of the 22 Constitution, and it isn't there in the months 
before when Tom Johnson is in fact in the Parliament. And I, I, I was very grateful to them for the very long explanation that um, Tom Johnson did on behalf of the, the, his 15 members, because one of them didn't sign the document and, 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 the, and the constitution. And all of that, I think, is incredibly important. So the notion that you have a single document, instrument, in 1922, from which everything is derived, is quite capable of being trafficked. And, and I, I think it, it's inaccurate. Fergal, on the question of uh, qualified amnesia, what, what, all, so many of the deaths in civil wars, and you, you've seen this, are intimate deaths. The killer knows the victim. This happened in Listole with repercussions. Uh, so presumably there are, such, there are such examples, which of course we know so little about, but they would be there in the culture of all the wars that you are yourself addressing. <clears throat> the memory of the uh, assassination of Tobias O'Sullivan, yeah. of James Kane, but also the killings which occurred during the Civil War, and my own family took the Free State side. I had uh, a granduncle who was a, a, an intelligence officer with the Free State Army. Uh, and one see, I mean, one of the, the striking stories I heard while researching the period was of him returning home one evening and being set upon by the relatives of people who held him responsible in a larger sense, for being part of, that, of the Free State Army entity and being badly beaten up. That again, that subsequently begat revenge against those who, who had beaten him. Um, some of his old Free State Army comrades came along and, uh, and sorted out, as it were, the people who had done that. And so, in, in the back of my mind, through every conflict I've been in, and whether that's uh, in Rwanda, which was, I have to qualify by saying that was you know, propelled by a genocidal ideology, that was not the case here. But that intimacy, and then the notion that 10 years later, you're going to have, when you come out of prison, as was in the case of Rwanda, or happens in Bosnia, you're going to have to live in the same village with the people. And how do we, it strikes me, the urgent, the imperative of this moment is, how do we make that process possible on this island, in the north of this island, where people are expected to live alongside? Which you can do physically. Of course you can do it physically. Or you can, in the case in Belfast, as, as is happening at the moment, build ever higher, ever longer peace walls. But how do you get the, the great missed opportunity since 1998 has been to address the fundamental, and that is how people live together, how they overcome the fear and the hatred, which is the fuel of sectarianism. And it strikes me we really haven't even begun to address that. So what's your comment then to Porik Gates? And so Porik talks about, and, and, and quite rightly, and, and you know, addressing the issue of, of amnesty for those who were actually perpetrators of violence. But that will solve, I don't even say solve, that will deal with a particular legal problem. It doesn't deal with the moral crisis yeah. that underpins the tragedy of the North, the ongoing tragedy of the North. And you know, better minds than mine have, have wrestled with this uh, since the signing of the peace agreement. But it, it does strike me as being imperative that our investment is at the, the level of communities, of neighborhoods, and it's messy. It's frequently 10 steps backwards for every step forward you take. But it is about that, and you know, investing in encouraging communities 
to speak with each other. And it is at the heart of what I said today about the responsibility of political leaders, about humility. It's not about declaring victory or saying we're on the march and you're stuffed, whether you say that explicitly or implicitly. And you're hearing that to some extent, are you? I worry at some of the rhetoric that I hear. And it is not the language of this great island. It's not the language of generosity, of the generosity of which we are capable. Angela Burke, you... Yeah, I suppose I'd like to say something in favour of microhistory. The President was stretching out this idea of a point of time in 1922 when a given document is believed to have been constructed and with everything flowing from that. And it seems to me that by proliferating individual accounts, as we, some of us have been doing today, particularly Fargal, and Declan talking about his, his granduncle, his great-uncle, uh, one of the things that struck me, Declan said that his, his great-uncle had, his great-aunt, I suppose, uh, had children to consider. And it has often struck me, looking at the material of this, I'm not a trained historian, I work with language and literature and oral traditions, but in looking at this and looking at the individual families, they passed, they, they transitioned in the period of the, of the decade of commemoration. They transitioned from idealistic teenagers or people in their early 20s to being the parents of families. And... You know, again, I would, I would applaud what Porrigates has suggested. Um, I, actually, the year I left school was 1969. I had become, through some process of attrition, a member of the Red Cross uh, as a schoolgirl. And I got a, a call from Father Louis, something or other, who was a Jesuit, not a Jesuit, Franciscan in, in Gormanston, asking for volunteers to come to Gormanston camp to look after the children who had been removed from Belfast. And they were mostly, of course, the marginal children, but children who didn't have two parents who were already been maybe reared by a grandparent or whatever. Um, and then throughout the, the troubles that followed when I was a student, um, I, most of my friends were actually from Derry or Belfast. So I was in both cities when those things were happening. I was on the Lone Moor Road in Derry when rubber bullets were passing. But the idea that uh, loud voices triumph and make these bullying narratives for their own purposes can be counteracted. The work that Katrina Crow has done in archives is stupendous. And, you know, we have the ability now to actually honour individual voices. I would also perhaps, you know, echo what Cahal Porter said about his findings about the famine memories, that the material is, is there, it's in And it's richer, memories. you're saying, it's richer and it's... It's richer, but also it complicates it. Yeah. We, need, mm-hmm. we need to stretch out the, the, the not quite hard toffee to make it possible to see. I mean, scientists do it, you know, with electrophoresis. They, you know, they, 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 or a microtome, rather. They, they, they take a tiny, tiny sliver and they examine it. And then they take another sliver further along in the piece of tissue and they examine it. And I think we can do that in the humanities. I think, you know, the, the, the truth and justice, the truth and re- reconciliation. I think that there is a, an incredible demography that we are inclined to neglect. In 1901, a uh, majority of the people born on the island of Ireland, more than 50% were living outside of the island of Ireland. So much of what we are discussing has been made possible by the emptying out 
of the island of huge, not just individuals, but huge categories of people. I think the establishment, the, the uh, extension of grazing, for example, and Joe Lee has that right, where he says in the post-famine adjustment, it is the, the families gave way to fields. This is having, that has, people don't really want to address that, more or less suggesting that uh, land is just land. Grazing, the transition to grazing. In, in the Mayo, when John Gibbons and I did some work on what had happened to landlords in Mayo, we found that you could put a map that fitted exactly down on top of the landlords with what the graziers owned. Mm -hmm. And this was a kind of the thing which is a problem in, in history and in historiography. Yes, I think during one of our, our is, is the, the, the reluctance to deal with class. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's just so important. Uh, uh, I, I, I thought that that is this last six series that we, we made some progress on that, no more than we made in relation to the exclusion of women in the first lot when we were doing the War of Independence. Um, the President mentioned Gramsci, and yeah. Gramsci had a very interesting theory about what happens to a society when there's a missing middle generation. And this is what happened a lot of the time because of migration, yes. the emptying out that the President has described. And what Gramsci said is, if you have a missing generation, middle generation in a community or a country, there's no one to interpret the radical ideals of the young or the steady hand of conservatism of the old and mediate them into a viable social narrative. They're just people indulging in alternate fantasies. And uh, I think that was part, one of the reasons there wasn't more social progress through the 20th century in Ireland, you go through a rural village and there was kind of gapped houses in the middle gone. And even your image of <laughs> the films that got chopped up and we didn't see the middle <laughs> key part almost seems like a version of Gramsci's well, missing middle. Half a million people gone to England in the 1950s alone. 40,000 a year between 55 and 60. So this notion that there is a kind of a, moder a modernity emerged and that it was inevitable and difficult. It was at a huge price. There was no conversation on. between the very old and the very young yeah. in a shared language, because it wasn't possible, because the middle people were so often missing. Lilia, you want to come in on that? Listen, I, all I want to add is not anything <clears throat> serious, but something not serious. You mentioned, Declan, about some of uh, the people whose houses were burnt out being assisted there is an absolutely wonderful piece by Paddy Campbell, who was the son yes. of Beatty Glenavy, who was one of the people who had a house near Dublin, <clears throat> and the IRA came to burn it down. And she, rather imperious character in her own way, said, ah, now listen, hold on a moment. You're not to take that piece. And what about that piece and the other piece? And eventually she had the entire group who had come to build the house explaining to her which pieces she ought to retain, and they would bring them out of the house. There's a good old piano in there. We can't do that in, and they all. So I would like to record a note of humor. There is no humor in anything that we have said. There is pain, of course, suffering, yes, definitely. But there is also that irrepressible Irish quality of going beyond, of finding a way, of forgiving, you know, and that's what I guess, in the end, this is all about. So what is it about then, uh, President, if I can ask you that? 
what Machnev's, what, what, what were you hoping to achieve with Machnev and what do you believe has been achieved? I think the complexity of history, the, comp the fact that the events about which people have been writing partially are complex and interconnected, that is what. I think as well there have been significant inclusions, even in what we're doing in number six here today, when we were talking about Rift and talking about Tom Johnson and talking about that. I think that's very important. I also think as well that if it's for others to do it in relation to when I call this about ethical remembering and so forth, if you're going to be talking about ethics, you see, no more than Hannah Arendt didn't forgive everybody. No. She didn't forgive one very significant person for very good reasons, uh, and uh, her philosopher teacher. But they, I think one has to be. To, I think what we're what we're stressing is is that if the facts can be laid out, and therefore people can make interpretations of diff and different combinations, you get what I think Richard Carney calls narrative hospitality. That's one thing, but I don't, the other part about it is about what I was speaking about myself today. I wish I could say, for example, that uh, my father and my uh, uh, uncle reconciled. That is not the case. That is not the case. Uh, uh, my, my father uh, uh, suffered degrading poverty to the day he died. And, uh, 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 and I, I, I think you have to be honest if you're going to do the, the, the thing straightforwardly, I think this is what we've been trying to do, is by letting everything in, you are then in a position really to, 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 to stand back. And this is what one does, is that you don't invent a fiction. Fiction won't work. Mm -hmm. It isn't fiction. The, the point is lives have been lost, lives have been maimed, yeah. lives have been ruined. Other people have made vast fortunes on the backs of other people's misery. You cannot keep telling yourself that that's not the world you live in. We, 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 for example, I, we're, I hope when we're moving on, I realise where I am now, even as president in many cases, I know the many people who speak to me who, find, who say they're finding it difficult uh, to speak of peace, as if war was inevitable, that war is our natural condition. And we're in an intolerant moment in relation to that. Uh, again and again, uh, uh, th th this arises. That somehow or another, this is this is a, a kind of a thing that I wish I was had James Scott here to deal with. The notion that whatever that there is an inevitability that is in the possession of the powerful, that mustn't be questioned. This happens in relation to this is when when spirituality is corrupted by authoritarian religion and, and dogmatic nonsense. And with equally, you have it in relation to the notion that, for example, that we are for, that there is only one kind of development possible on our planet, and that is that we all become rather like uh, uh, the warlike nations that are in the modern capitalism. It, I'm very proud to have to say about it. For example, when I became president, and I see the pressure, was I supposed to say I have no beliefs anymore about anything? I believed all the stuff I did about human rights, about it. I, I feel this. I very much identify with Ferguson because I had that experience that he has had. In, in, in. But if you try to fiction it, make it fiction, or invent abstractions, you're not helping anybody. The point about it is, is, is this, go where the pain of doing the thing right. And that means you live in the experience of the other person and you take the stuff into you. And then what you do about it all is because Lilia's right. Uh, 
Uh, there's a time for humour. There's a time for truth. And humour is part of the truth and all the rest of it. And that is, in fact, how many people have survived their existence by looking at the absurdity of those who thought that they were their betters. You just look at them and laugh. <laughs> On that yeah. point, we'd like to thank you, President, very much for hosting all of this. Um, President Michael D. Higgins. I just say that our audience today consists very many about the people who have been contributing through the six seminars. And I want to say again, I thank you when you did give your paper, but I thank you again and for all of the others who are interested. And all I can say about John, thank you so much for what you have done for us. It's been marvellous. Yeah, yeah. And let us all say... And I would just say, may we always give history the importance and place that it deserves yes. and is needed. Yes. 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 That, concludes, that concludes our discussion today and indeed concludes this series of six Markhnov seminars. I've already mentioned that the proceedings of Markhnov's first three sessions have been published in book form and it's available as an e-book free of charge on the website www president.ie and the proceedings of the three Machnov since have will also be published in due course. It's also the case that all the Machnov seminars are available on the website www.president.ie and they can be watched at your own pace either as a sequence of papers or as individual contributions to the themes being discussed in that particular session. It remains for me just to thank the television production team who televised our proceedings, the staff at Oris and Uxron for all their help also thank all our speakers and you who are watching and the President for originating the initiative and hosting the proceedings here in the Hyde Room at Aulis on Ixalan.